Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. turning three, three things. Let me pass along. Uh, first, last week I mentioned the uh, uh, manuscripts to the uh, sermon series on the Reformation. Uh, that was popular, went like hotcakes, so we printed off some more. Uh, so there's some manuscripts up here if you'd like to grab some of those and read through that sermon series that I mentioned last week. Secondly, uh, this past week was uh, our uh, annual Southern Baptist Convention. Now that happens every year, um, but not every year is it in the news and nobody ever asked me about it. Uh, this year it is hot, controversial, and I've been asked about it at least 15 times. Uh, not, I'm not complaining about that, but I'm saying lots of people are interested in that. So um, this Wednesday night uh, in, in what we normally would do in the teaching time there, I'm going to give a report on what's going on. We will still talk through truth. You know, I got a rough outline. We got a lot of truth we're going to talk about. Just going to do it in a different kind of format. So if you've got questions and things, you can bring them there and I'll kind of give a report uh, Wednesday night. And then a week from today, um, next Sunday, we have uh, baptisms uh, coming up. And so we will be uh, having a meal together uh, after the baptisms. We'll head out to Ferdinand Forest, uh, do the baptisms immediately after church is providing chicken. And then if you'll bring sides, desserts uh, or, or drinks there, we'll share a fellowship meal together. And so please plan to be there for that. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Let's read it and then we'll pray. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you will come and give us grace now. Lord, we bow ourselves and we're coming to your word and it has once again difficult truths, 
Some difficult to understand and others difficult to submit to. We know because of the pride of our hearts. So we ask God that you give us help. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to glorify you and and honor you by responding to your word, responding to your truth, what you have revealed, Lord, in a way that honors you. So we pray, God, give help. Everything that needs to happen here, all of the grace, Father, please send it. I ask God that you'll protect this service. Uh, Father, I pray that you keep us from distraction. Please protect it, that we be able to concentrate, think deeply, Worship in the preaching and receiving of your word. Worship in the uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper together. We pray for our little ones uh, back in the next room who are uh, reciting what they've been memorized. God, we pray that you will give grace, uh, Lord, to send your spirit and shine light on your word. Father, we pray that you will feed us with your word. So please give help. We pray that we'll worship now. But God, we also pray that when we leave here, we'll live a life of worship as we are changed by having, by having encountered you in your word. So please produce obedience and holiness. Father, we ask for all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Last week uh, in our study, we spent a bit of time where I was telling you about uh, uh, some battle between two men during the Reformation, John Calvin and uh, Jacobus Arminius, and this battle over uh, understanding of Romans 7, 8, and 9. This week, let me take us uh, back farther into church history, Uh, back another 1,200 years from that point. Uh, to around 400-ish A.D., and another battle between two men and understanding of some of the elements of the book of Romans between uh, a man by the name of Augustine and then Pelagius, also centered around this very subject here. Uh, Augustine is one of those spiritual giants, uh, one of those uh, gifts to the church that God gave that we're 1,600 years removed from him. You still ought to be reading Augustine, just one of those uh, gifts that God's given the church. Now, we do not agree with every sentence he ever said, nor every book he ever wrote. I'll even mention some of those uh, this morning, but still yet in an overall way, a gift to the church. But like so many of those uh, mighty men of God who taught scripture through history, one of the things that uh, Augustine worked for is, yes, the teaching of scripture, but also as a part of the teaching of scripture, warning the church of error and false teaching and heresy. Um, Calling out to say, here's something going on that is dangerous. Uh, Take heed to this. And there was a man by the name of Pelagius, who was, uh, he became greatly popular. He was a real effective and winsome communicator who was teaching things contrary to scripture. Uh, Now, last week when I mentioned um, Arminius, um, I I made the statement that in general, I would count him as a, you know, a faithful teacher of the word, but we disagree with him on his take of Romans 7, 8, and, and, and 8, 9. That's not the take of Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius would eventually be deemed a heretic, and I believe rightly so. Pelagius taught that mankind is not seriously affected by the fall. That mankind is not depraved. He, He denied original sin. 
And so therefore that understanding we have of the sin nature and, and all that we've been seeing, the book of Romans teach us about our inability, our inability to truly want God, trust God and love God that if God had never come to us, we never would have wanted him in a, in a true saving kind of way. Pelagius taught that mankind is, isn't all that bad. Uh, he, there was always this lessening of the effect of the fall and essentially teaching no one needs special grace to be drawn by God. You can do that on your own. Man is good enough to come to God in his own strength. Now, let me uh, kind of pause for a parenthesis here to kind of make this part clear. Um, many who are in the Arminian tradition, so I'll give the example of, say, John Wesley. John Wesley is uh, one of these, uh, uh, another hero. Uh, he's the guy that eventually led to Methodism, Wesleyanism. I think there were like three denominations that uh, came out of his influence and such. I count Wesley a hero. I think you should too, even though we would disagree with his take on Romans 9. Uh, Wesley denied um, unconditional election. And when you hear that, one of the things that instantly should jump to our minds is... But what about total depravity? Because if you deny the doctrine of divine sovereignty, if you back up, there's also a problem of the contradiction of who we are as sinful humans with our inability. And so many within that Arminian tradition would, would, would just, you know, say that it's not really the case and kind of agree with Pelagius. That's not the case with John Wesley, however. Wesley kind of found a way to wiggle around that. Wesley taught that, yes, mankind is totally depraved and unable to want God, except that at birth, God gives to every single person a special grace where he kind of raises them out of the pits of depravity, brings them higher to give them the ability to choose God want God, repent, trust God on their own. He called that work of God prevenient grace. So you've probably heard that terminology before, but that's, that's what it's referring to. The problem, as we so often point out, is the Bible, okay? Uh, that's nowhere in the scriptures, okay? Uh, and, and that's one of the, the points that we see over and over again. When you break from the Bible, later on, you're always gonna have to invent something. You're always going to have to make something up of kind of like, well, I think it must be like, and then you just roll down some crazy road because once you break from the Bible, now you've got distortions and later on the consequences, you're going to have to make some stuff up. Hang on to that idea. But now coming back to Pelagius here, Pelagius denied original sin, denied mankind's truly fallen condition there. And so Augustine wrote a number of works to address the church and call out the warning of, of these uh, false teachings. Augustine wrote to clarify what the Bible has to say on original sin, that in sin my mother conceived me from Psalm 51. Now, um, I like Augustine. I think you should too. Um, but one of the places that we disagree with Augustine here is he used his teaching on original sin to encourage Christians. That's why you should baptize your babies, baptize your babies and you make your baby a Christian and you wash them 
of their original sin. That idea was getting popular. This then even led down the road. Augustine came up with this idea. Okay, well, what happens to unbaptized babies then if they die? And he came up with this idea. Well, I think that there must be somewhere in between heaven and hell, some kind of in-between sort of limbo, which down through church history would eventually lead to the, the idea of purgatory. All of this not in the Bible, once again, break from the Bible, you eventually have to make some stuff up uh, to, to explain away some things that have happened there. So some of the things with Augustine we don't agree with, but Pelagius's teaching became wildly popular. Now, um, I'm sure every once in a while, as I'm talking about things from 1,600 years ago, you might sit there and be like, why is pastor all the time talking about this stuff that happened a long time ago that has nothing to do with today? It's because it does have something to do with today. Ideas have consequences. And ideas have consequences for thousands of years. Pelagianism is here, baby. It is in America. Uh, it is in American churches. And in fact, in the 20th century, there was a revival of Pelagianism. And I mean people like cheering Pelagian, like I love Pelagius on t-shirts and stuff. It actually made it into, uh, maybe not that, that might be an exaggeration. I never saw an I love Pelagius t-shirt, but you get where I'm going. Okay. It actually made it into some Hollywood movies though, references to the beautiful theology of Pelagius. And if you think about it, of course, of course the world would love the teachings of Pelagius. It's removing some of the very things that are hard and difficult about the Bible and that the world hates. This stuff is still influencing. Ideas have consequences. But after Pelagius died, a couple decades later, uh, his teachings were still plaguing the church. And actually at the Council of Ephesus in 431, uh, the church deemed Pelagianism to be heresy. Now, on some other days, we can talk about church councils and how later in history they started to get crazy and we do not count all of them valid, but this decision in 431, I agree with. Pelagianism is not just error, it is heresy. There's a difference. Heresy is the kind of stuff that leads to destruction. And Pelagianism is, what is amazing, is that as I describe Pelagianism to you, you were probably thinking, I see it all around me. There's a reason why we need to know church history, where we fit in the story and heresies we've already dealt with. We shouldn't have to deal with them again once we've declared them heresy in history. But we have seen that it is not just some obscure sentence from the Bible. We have seen it repeatedly shown to us throughout the book of Romans that we are in such a fallen condition apart from Christ, that if God did not exercise supernatural grace, not only to send Jesus to die, to make atonement, but the supernatural work of God choosing us, drawing us, calling us and awakening us in the new birth, none of us would have wanted God. So for you who are in Christ, you are saved because God had mercy on you. You are a recipient of his pursuing grace, his drawing and calling. He predestined us and then followed through. And so Romans 9 has been showing us more about this work of God predestining and it's been wrestling through some of the questions of our hearts like, is that unrighteous? 
For God to predestine a, a normal, sinful human reaction is, is that fair? Is God allowed to work like that? Verse 14 asks the question, there is no injustice with God, is there? And then the rest of the passage begins to unfold. We saw in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, three answers given to that question. Uh, and of course, it's not unrighteous. The Bible says so. Uh, predestination is an act of God's mercy. Predestination and this work of God uh, in hearts is how the world has always worked and quoted from the Old Testament showing us this. But then in verse 19, there's, there's a bit of a transition. It's not a huge transition, but it's a bit of a transition in that a question is asked more specifically on this. Because in verses 17 and 18, it's introduced about God's work of hardening some individuals. Verse 19 then asks this question that maybe you have asked in your own heart. If that's the way that God works, if God has ordained a plan, then why are we still accountable? That is still a question of righteousness. It is still a question about whether it is righteous for God to act in this way. And so two more answers are given, and, and that's what we'll begin to cover. Where The, the, the plan to, uh, this morning is to finish up this point, finish up verses uh, all the way through verse 23 there. Uh, maybe just touch just a little bit of verse 24. Finish those up. We'll see the two answers, and then uh, finishing up the text, verses 22, 23, 24 there. Uh, that'll be the final one we look at that summarizes God's purposes and what's been shown in all of this. So... We're ready for, if you're taking notes, uh, subpoint letter E, which is lay your hand over your mouth. So look at verse 19 again. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? The question here is, if God ordains all that comes to pass, then why is anyone accountable? If God predestines, and his secret purposes will come about, then that means that even sin that is committed somehow fits into his ordained plan. That'll make your head spin. That'll give you some sleepless nights. And, and understand that there are some who take this to like some disastrous places instead of going where the Bible goes, they go wherever their mind wants to go. Okay, like, oh, well, my sin's predestined by God. Well, then live it up essentially giving themselves justification for whatever they want to do. But if we ask the question, you know, those who do not believe, why are they responsible for their unbelief? Now, let me, let me point this out as well. If we are teaching the doctrine of God's sovereignty rightly, then we will ask this question, right? Because that's where the text goes. Okay, just like if you teach the doctrine of justification by grace through faith rightly, you will get the question, well, what about abusing grace? Because that's where the book of Romans went. If we are rightly teaching the doctrine of God's sovereignty, then the question will come up of things like, if God is sovereign, then do my actions and decisions and prayers and evangelism matter? Okay, so this is where the text is bringing us. Now, when that question is asked, okay, I'm a human. I think in human ways there's a place that I instantly want to jump to. 
So you ask me, the preacher, that question, there's somewhere that I instantly want to go to. Where I instantly want to take you to is to Romans 10. Because in Romans 10, there's going to be this beautiful, helpful unfolding of human responsibility, human accountability, okay? It is so beautiful that God designed the Bible that Romans 9 and 10 are right next to each other. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, right next to each other, uh, given as a help. And and so um, what we'll see in chapter 10 uh, is that your prayers count and matter, Your evangelism is necessary. Yes, your decisions, they are real decisions. We're not robots. We're not puppets. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, they synchronize. They're not enemies. They're friends. They work together perfectly. And to God, it's not difficult. To us, it's difficult. To God, there's no difficulty. And we'll talk more about that in Romans 10. But what you notice is that that's not where the text brings us first. When the question is asked about why is anyone accountable? What about my decisions or people's belief? All that kinds of thing. There is a bigger issue at stake before God brings us to feel better. Where does the text do? Where does the text bring us? First, it brings us to submit to the sovereign rule of God. So even before we go to the place that really answers our question so that I can sleep at night, the very first thing it does is brings up the need to submit to the supremacy of God's rule. So it would be kind of like this. If you were having gospel conversations with somebody and they were working through whether they believe the Bible and they ask you the question, why should I obey God? How would you answer that question? Because you could answer it in a lot of ways that would all be true biblical answers. So for instance, you could, you could answer that question by saying, well, God loves you. And uh, God's law is given to us as a gift of his grace. God's law acts as a guardrail to keep us from driving off a cliff into misery. Obeying God will lead to your greater joy. Okay, that is a true biblical answer. But let me ask you, is it the most important answer? Is it the weightiest answer? No, there is an answer that is more definitive than that. And the, and the first and most primary answer is God is Lord. God is ruler. He is the supreme over all of creation. You belong to him. You owe him submission and obedience and worship. You should obey God because God is God. That answer is the greater answer. That answer is the one we need to know even before the others. That's the answer that helps us understand the universe. And similarly, when we ask the question of verse 19, the Bible is going to take us to give us some answers that we want. Now listen, not everyone, okay? Not everyone. But we will be given some answers that we want. But before that, we are given something that we need. And what we need is to bow the knee to the rule and the sovereignty of God. He is the ruler who sits above the heavens. 
He is the one who is the fountain of life. He is the one before whom angels fall and cry glory. There is a kind of submission that we need to give to God that can only be understood by comprehending his supreme sovereignty. Christian, there is a kind of humility, a kind of thinking of who we are and who God is, a kind of worship, a kind of surrender that is only possible when we understand his supremacy when we understand his godness and his sovereignty it's the kind of submission that verse 22 is work excuse me verse 20 yeah and 21 and 22 is working to produce so look at verse 20 here's the first answer on the contrary who are you o man who answers back to god it is the idea there of don't you dare accuse God of evil. Don't you dare question his goodness. Now, you and I are going to have questions, all right? We're going to have questions on divine sovereignty, human responsibility. We're going to have questions on where did evil come from, those kinds of things. As you read the Bible, one of the ways the Bible teaches us to study the Bible is to ask questions of the text. That is a good thing. The Bible teaches us in when we pray, to ask God for understanding of some of our questions when we pray. Understand that the asking of questions does not dishonor God. But you and I both know that there is a way to ask a question that is humble and sincere, knowing that there is a good answer, I just don't know what it is. God, would you show me? And then there's a way to ask a question that is disrespectful in its tone and its intent. That is the way that Paul is addressing this here in verses 19. So when I read it, there's a reason why I took the tone that I did. It's because the first answer that he gives there is is a remark that is addressing someone who is not asking a sincere question, but is questioning the authority and rule of God. We have to be careful that when we ask our questions, we do so in a way that is in a posture of worship. Now, when we first studied through divine sovereignty back in chapter 8, one of the places that we went and spent a little bit of time on is in the book of Job. Job chapters 38, 39, 40, 41. At the end of that book there, um, after uh, Job had spent many chapters questioning and complaining uh, against uh, God. Now we know, uh, not in a blasphemous way, Job did keep uh, a heart of worship throughout that, but it is the case that Job uh, did cross the line from time to time in questioning and complaining. After a, a long section of that, God finally addressed Job. God spoke. In chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41 are God asking Job hundreds of questions that are meant to reveal his godness and his supremacy. God asked Job, where were you when I cast the stars in the sky? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Can you bind the chains of Pleiades so that its stars continue in its existence? Do you know the storehouses for rain? Can you make it snow? Can you form babies in the womb? Can you create a Leviathan and then feed him? 
Can you understand the way of a bird in flight and then let alone create the world in which those laws exist? Do you know the expanse of the universe? Are you able to provide water for the ends of the earth? Can you fix the seasons? Can you lift your voice to the clouds so that they obey your voice? Consider the wisdom, the wonder, and the glory of the creation that God made and rules and governs and be in all. And at the end of that, Job replied, I lay my hand on my mouth. I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Sherman Nagal wrote a short poem capturing the, this main point of Job. He said, you cannot put one little star in motion. You cannot shape one single forest leaf, nor fling a mountain up, nor sink an ocean, presumptuous pygmy large with unbelief. You cannot bring one down of regal splendor, nor bid the day to shadowy twilight fall, nor send the pale moon forth with radiance tender, and dare you doubt the one who has done it all. The book of Job sets forth the godness of God. The godness of God and the low creatureliness of man. See, we need to know who we are and where we fit in this cosmos. And we'll never know who we are and how we fit into this universe and into this story until we know God. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is showing us who he is and that gives us reference point for who we are and how we fit into all of this cosmos. It puts us in our proper place and posture before God. Letter F, he is the potter, we are the clay. You see there in the end of verse 20, as he begins to use this metaphor of uh, the idea you're thinking of a potter throws the clay on the wheel, it spins, and he is shaping something with his hands. And then verse 21 says, does not the potter have a right over the clay to make what he wants? Um, there's other places in the Bible where this metaphor is used. If you'll jump back with me to Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah 18, I'm going to read the first 11 verses there. Um, I don't have time to comment a lot. Now, one of the things I, do, I would like to point out there, though, is um, in this passage that is talking about God's sovereignty, I want you to also notice how much reference to human responsibility and accountability and decisions is also here in this passage, okay? So these, these two things are brought together here as well. Jeremiah 18, verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. And then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord, Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, 
I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or in another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back, each of you, from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. Now, there in Jeremiah, God's using this illustration to refer to the way that he is sovereign over nations to form, to bless, to uproot, to judge. In Romans 9, it is addressing individuals and concerning the way that God draws some to himself. God lets others go to what they want and even to certain like Pharaoh and Esau, God hardens. But God has the right to do as he pleases. The argument in Romans 9 is that God created everything that exists you know, there not only weren't planets and stars when God first made the world, there wasn't even the material to make the planets and the stars. God formed matter. He created atoms. And what the, the, the basic argument is, what God created, what he formed, he has the right to rule. He owns it. It belongs to him. He has the right to govern it. God created matter, therefore God owns, has the right to rule. He governs all that he has made and he has made everything. Creation is in the hands of God. There's a reason why the Bible begins, opens up with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a lot more being preached there than just the God made stuff. It is also preaching his ownership of all of the cosmos. It's preaching his right to rule. All belongs to him. Creation was made to be in subjection to God. It's all under his rule. And again, you'll never know who you are and you'll never understand where you fit in all of this world until you understand creation. That you are made of the dust, but formed by God's hands into his image and given dignity by his life being in you. But consider the argument again, back in Romans nine with the potter and the clay. God's ownership of the universe and his sovereignty means he has the freedom and the right to do what he desires because it belongs to him. In verse 20, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? It means, what makes you think that you have the right to call God to account? What makes you think that you would have the right to say to God, I demand that you give me an answer on this? What authority do you think you have over him? What, what power? What, what do you think that you have that he needs that you're going to withhold from him if he doesn't give you the answer that you demand? What would make you think that you have the right to take him to court, so to speak, either metaphorically or actually? God is the highest authority. 
You know, if you have a court case on earth and you believe that the ruling was unjust, you can appeal to a higher authority. And in our nation, you can keep doing that until you would come to what we call the Supreme Court. Let's just pretend for a moment that um, there was a human court even higher than that. I'm glad there's not, but let's just pretend that there was. Let's pretend that uh, above the Supreme Court, there was a Supreme Court of North America and then a Supreme Court over the Western Hemisphere. And then you could keep appealing higher, a Supreme Court over all of the earth. And then we're stretching. But then let's say there was a Supreme Court over our solar system. And then a Supreme Court over the Milky Way galaxy. You keep going, you keep rising, and eventually you would come to a, a Supreme Court over the universe. But we're still not done. Because we've not even begun to talk about the spiritual world, the heavenly realm. You would eventually keep working your way up until you would reach whatever the highest court of authority is over heaven and earth. Well, friends, there is a court of authority that is over the heavens and the earth. It is the rule and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of heaven and earth. And he sits at the right hand of the father. And the point is, there is no authority that is higher there's nobody that has the right, the authority, or the power to just bully their way in there and call God to account. You do realize that if God were not righteous, that would be really scary. You always got to be so, so thankful that he is holy and righteous. I think a lot of times we don't comprehend just how terrifying the universe would be if that was not the case. Because there's nobody that can do anything about it. There's nobody that has authority over God. It, there's nobody, you know, so I'm, I'm speaking like Paul says at times, you know, I'm not blaspheming. I'm just humanly speaking. If God did wrong, he would never do this. But if God did wrong, there's nobody who could do anything about it. Because there's nobody who would be able to go and arrest him, bring him to some court. He is the highest authority God is not under a law. There's no law that God sits beneath that he has to obey. It works the other way around. He is the holy and righteous one. Now, thankfully, he desires only what is holy and righteous. He does only what is holy and righteous, but he's the one who gives law. He is not under law himself. And what that means is that he has the supreme right to rule. And every time mankind on earth, you know, feels really puffed up and they ask some question of something like, well, what I demand him to answer to is play your hand over your mouth. Who do you think you are that you can call God to account? There is no one above him. He formed immaterial existence of time. He has sovereignty over time. He can suspend time, stop time, speed time, suspend time. He's not under the reign of time. He's outside and above time. That means he has the right to bring about time and history in any way that he pleases. What verse 20 is preaching is God's sovereign right to govern and no one has the right to question him. This is where the text takes us before it answers some of our questions about how it all works together. The supremacy 
of God. God has the right to take humans that he designed, he ordained. He decreed their existence in his book were written all the days that were ordained for them when as yet there were none of them. He has the right to take souls that were marching towards hell and save some of them. Let others go to what they want and even to harden some of them. And he is righteous in all of it. Well, now look at the end here. Last sub point, letter G, how verses 22 to 24 sum up all of this. God's eternal purpose, the display of the glory of his grace. Read read starting in verse 22 with me again. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, meaning that when he ordained a plan for the earth, he was willing to demonstrate wrath, And to make his power known, as he did with Pharaoh, endured with much patience vessels of wrath that would be referring to those who will not eventually be saved. Vessels of wrath. And then here's the last of the hard parts that Romans 9 is going to teach us. Prepared for destruction. Meaning that there is a way in which this fits into the ordained plan of God. Verse 23, and he did so. So here's why he did all of that. To make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. The vessels of mercy there, that is, those who will be saved by the blood of Jesus. Those who have been saved, those who are right now, those who will be saved by the blood of Christ. Vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So why did God ordain history as he has? That's what these verses are addressing. And guys, these passages are so, so critical. This is the Bible once again giving you the great, the answers to the greatest questions, the why. Science will never be able to tell you the why. It can tell you how. And it's never able to answer the why. Philosophers through history, they've tried to answer why questions, and a lot of them have ended up insane, literally, sometimes metaphorically. Crazy roads trying to answer the why. The Bible is giving us the true why behind it all. God ordained history as he has in order to display the riches of his glory to vessels of mercy, to you who are in Christ, to you who are trusting in him. You are part of the whole point. Not that you are that significant in yourself, but God has chosen to make you a recipient of grace, an object of his love, a recipient of mercy so that you will be enamored by his mercy and worship him so that the angels will see and worship so that all of creation will see and glorify him. This is why God ordained history as he has. It is for the unfolding of the gospel and the glory of the Lord Jesus. Now, verse 22, though, tells us what is part of that plan. Part of the work of outpouring of mercy involved others, other sinners who would not be saved. These vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It is another one of the realities here. And this is the last of the difficult truths that there is a way in which this fits into the ordained plan of God. 
God designed people in his mind to create. And of those who were marching towards hell, he chose to save some and chose to pass over others. So this is sometimes referred to as double predestination or reprobation. The fact that God knew in his plan what he was doing, that he knew he was passing over some and it is intentional in his mind that this is part of his plan. Now, this is, this is some of those difficult things. We always got to remember that we're amongst the sinners with sinful thinking and it skews our perspective. Uh, imagine if you walked up to some giant anthill and all of the ants that lived inside of this, they were evil to the core. This is, this is one of those kind of fantasy illustrations, but go with me. All of these ants were evil to the core. Their every thought was wicked and they were so depraved in their thinking that they no longer even understood what goodness was and they all thought of themselves as good even though they were evil and they began to blaspheme your name and they lived in your backyard. You would be under, under no obligation whatsoever to do kindness to them, to give grace to them. But let's say that you had the power and you decided that you wanted to become an ant. And you came to the, the, the ants there and you died in the place of some of them. You would have the complete right to choose if you wanted to save some of them or to pass others over or even to harden the hearts of some. What Romans 9 is saying is that God ordained a plan and he viewed a history like this and he has chosen what he wants to do. And he's righteous in all of it. He was under no obligation to save any of us. It is nothing but grace that saved even one individual from history. And he has chosen to save many. But part of it that we have to recognize and know just as truth, he chose to pass others over. And to just kind of show that this is not some obscure verse in the Bible, let me tell you three other places where this same kind of truth is told. Proverbs 16, 4 says, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. First Peter 2, 7 through 8, speaking of Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom, they were also appointed. Jude 1, 4 says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. That's crept into the church, into the visible church. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who deny our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. God decreed a plan of history and it involved a number of things. Part of that plan that God created and ordained, uh, ordained a plan where there would be sinners who lived in rebellion against him. That there would be a history of this earth where mankind rebelled against him. Understand part of what verse 22 is saying is that God has had to exercise patient endurance, patient restraint in order to keep himself from destroying the earth, from destroying mankind. 
Now, I know that when I say that kind of thing, if you're new to studying the Bible, that sounds just strange to you. If you're of the idea that God's a big grandpa in the sky and he's just happy with everybody, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us sin is treason. Sin is spitting in the face of the God who deserves worship. Do you ever hear about a sin or a crime that just makes you ill? It just makes you sick. Just yesterday, I encountered a new story, even had some video clips with it. And when I was done watching it, I, I was literally nauseous. It took away my appetite. It sickened me. And I wanted that guy who did what he did to that little girl to receive the justice that he deserves. The law of God says he should be put to death. And I want that to happen. It won't because of our unjust society. But that is what ought to happen. And I desire it. And you need to know that desiring that is not unrighteous. Desiring justice, desiring for evil to be dealt with, that is a righteous desire. We have to comprehend that God thinks and feels like that about sins that we don't get sick over. God views sin differently. We're the ones who live here in the muck and the mire. Of course, our thinking is skewed and our perspective is skewed. God is the Holy One who sees it all perfectly. And what the Bible shows is that when God looks at mankind, it requires patient restraint for God to keep himself from destroying the earth. Sin provokes the jealousy of the Lord. He desires to deal with evil in a final and definitive kind of way. So why doesn't he? Well, he will. But imagine what would have happened if he had done it in the Old Testament. If God had destroyed the earth and brought that final judgment before Jesus came, then no soul would ever be saved in history because the atonement had not been made. And then since the time that Jesus uh, accomplished the death and resurrection to pay for sins, what second Peter says is that every day that God does not destroy this earth is a day of salvation. It's a day that more souls enter the kingdom of heaven. Guys, think about it. Every single day, people repent and believe every day. I don't know the number, but every day, China, Africa, South America, there are people believing and repenting and trusting in Christ and they enter the kingdom of God. Well, what if, what if God had brought the day of judgment on the day before you turned to Christ? That means that you and I would have been brought to hell every day that God exercises patient restraint by not judging as he wants to, it is salvation. And when he has saved the last of the elect, the last soul from the last tribe, tongue, people, or nation that he's going to save, then the end will come. If you in the room, if, if you have never believed that you're, you're bad enough that you need to be saved, what I beg you to do is to start reading the Bible Okay, book of John, start there, takes less than an hour to read. Even just that place will convince you of, of your need. But you, you need to know that God says in scripture that you are headed towards hell because of your sin. 
But the whole point of why Jesus came is to make a way that mercy can be poured out. If you will change your mind, that's what the word repent means. Change your mind and believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus to save you. Then you will be saved at the instant that you place your faith in Christ. So believe. God has designed a great plan for history. I'm I'm wrapping up here. God has designed a great plan for history and he's sovereign over it. A.W. Pink calls the doctrine of the sovereignty of God the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth. If we try to understand what it is that makes God worthy of worship, you know, part of what it is that makes God God, we would have to include his glory, his holiness, but we also have to include his sovereignty. God's sovereignty is part of what helps us understand and tremble as we should before him as the supreme one. Learning about God's sovereignty is meant to awaken within us something similar to what learning about the vastness of the universe does. You learn about the vastness of the universe, the bigness of stars and such, and and your sense of wonder in his creation is, is just amazed. And you want everybody to come see this. Learning about the sovereignty of God over history, decreeing a plan, saving souls, awakens a gratitude and a reverence, a fear and trembling that we see him more of who he is. So so listen, if you do not know the doctrine or worse, if you deny the doctrine of God's sovereignty, there's a cost. There's a heavy cost. You don't know who you are. You don't know how the world works. You don't know how you fit into this big story because you do not know who God is. God is sovereign. It puts us in our proper place. Jesus said, that unless you are converted and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and, And what that means is, when we stand before God, when I think of myself, my posture before God, well, of course I'm not equal with him, but we are not even to see ourselves as, I'm an adult before God, like I provide for myself. I work my way into heaven. I accomplish what I need by my own. No, no, no. Before God, I'm a little baby. We're a little child before him. We are helpless, dependent. We are in need of receiving grace. Like a little baby spoon fed, we need to receive grace. That, that, by the way, is another reason why the Lord's Supper is an accurate metaphor for the gospel of salvation. By grace, we receive from his hand. Let's take a minute or two here as we often do. I'm going to give a a bit for a silent confession of sin, uh, preparing our hearts. I'll end us in prayer in a bit, and then I'll give us some more instructions here in just a bit. But I'll give you a minute or two uh, for silent confession of sin.
Our Lord God, we come and we ask for mercy. We are confident that the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus has accomplished uh, the atonement for our sins, that we who have trusted in Christ, in the eternal sense, our sins are already forgiven and pardoned. But Lord, we know that in the ongoing sense of our relationship with you, that we need to confess our sins and that you are gracious to forgive us and restore us. So we ask for that now, O oh God. We want to be clean before you. We, we not only want our sins forgiven that we can have communion with you, but Lord, we want them gone from our life. We want them to be no more. So we pray, cleanse us from our sins. Forgive us, God, for all the ways that we have broken commandments. Forgive us for how we have uh, crossed the line. Forgive us for ways we've fallen short of your instructions, ways we have omitted uh, duties that you have called us to. Forgive us for ways we've lusted and acted on our lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life. God, please give us grace. We lower ourselves, humble ourselves, and pray that as we remember the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, that we'll do so reverently. Help us to remember, and we pray this uh, in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, let me ask uh, Pastor Ben, uh, Ethan, if you guys will come on up here, please, and you guys can go ahead and start setting some stuff up while I address the rest of you. If you want to uh, carry some of that back, uh, one of the, just one of the trays. Scripture tells us that um, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that this is something that God has given to his people, those who have believed on the Lord Jesus. Scripture tells us that this is only for those that have trusted in Christ, and we believe followed that up in obedience with baptism, that this is not for those that are outside of Christ. The Bible actually says that you would eat and drink condemnation on yourselves if you participate. We're told to approach this in a, in a reverent kind of way, that we are uh, properly prepared, that we've confessed sin, that we not have uh, ongoing, habitual, presumptuous sin, that we've not turned from in our lives. So we approach it in a way that is meant to honor him, remembering what Christ has done. So let me read to you some of the scriptures and then I'll give more instruction. The Bible says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you choose to partake with us, by the way, you do not have to be a member. In order to partake, we just give the warnings that Scripture does. But if you choose to partake with us, uh, please come. We've got a place here and at the back. Please uh, take a piece of the bread, uh, one of the cups. You can return to your seat and then uh, hold off for the time being. And then I'll read some more scripture and then we'll all partake together. But uh, you can go ahead and come to the front and to the back there.
Scripture says, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's partake together. Pray with me, please. Oh Lord, thank you for what you have accomplished. When we consider it, Lord, we are overwhelmed with gratitude. We ask that you will give us grace, oh Lord, that now that we're gonna leave, we're gonna go out, we're gonna be with families, friends in the world. Father, we pray that we'll live in a way that reflects who we are, what you've done, Lord, that we will live lives worthy of the gospel. Father, I, I pray that out of our worship, we will obey, obey with greater intensity, that we'll strive for holiness. Lord, that we'll work for usefulness in your kingdom. We want to glorify you and you be pleased. Increase this desire in us, O oh God, and bless us. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.